thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening and welcome to this Bible study. We are continuing our study of the book of Numbers, and tonight we're going to cover chapters 9 and 10. And the outline of the study, the salient points we're going to cover, is um, we're going to talk about the second Passover that is mentioned in chapter 9, as well as the cloud of fire. Uh, And then we're going to move on to the trumpets in chapter 10 and their importance, as well as the beginning of the march. So towards the end of chapter 10, they're about now to leave Sinai. And we, there we're going to see three points. I'll repeat everything I'm saying for those of you who are taking notes. The order of the march, we're going to talk about that very briefly. The guidance in the wilderness and the guidance, uh, and the guidance in the wilderness as it regards to the cloud and the guidance to the wilderness as it regards the ark. And the, um, the important the importance of these chapters for us is to see how God guides his people. What is his view on how he guides us? Oftentimes we say that we want our lives to be directed by God. Well, here in these two chapters, he explains how he wants that to happen. And I think this is what's really important about the book of Numbers because it's really um, essentially <clears throat> God in action throughout his people. And as you take these activities that happened with the Israelites in, in, the, in the wilderness and you project them out to us today, because you know that scriptures has been written for our sanctification, then you begin to understand what God expects, what is his perspective on things, because he does tell us. So again, the, the, the main points, we're going to go through the second Passover, and that's in chapter 1. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 14, the cloud of fire. Chapter 9, verse 15 through 23. And then we'll move to chapter 10, where we really have two parts, the trumpets and their significance. And that's chapter 10, verse 1 through 10. And then the march to the Transjordan, which is starting at verse 11 in chapter 10, and really continuing all the way till chapter 22, verse 1. This is the part where they are actually moving in the wilderness. But as you recall from prior studies, it really, these chapters will focus on the first month of their uh, traveling and pretty much the last month towards the end of their traveling. So, 
With that, let's then begin with chapter 9. Let's remember again what is the uh, overall context, because otherwise we do lose track of the importance of these things. So far, what we've seen in number is nothing more but a preparation for leaving. And the preparation centered first on a census, counting all the tribes, especially the men who are able to go to war. And then the census of the priests and all of the Levites who will be responsible for the transportation of the tent. And that, we spent quite a bit of time talking about it, how God assigned the jobs to specific parts of the Levites. The Gershonites, the Merorites, the Korites, each one of them received a specific duty, and they didn't ask for it. God is not waiting for them to ask. He is directing them to their tasks and telling them what he expects them to do. And the really important point for all of us is that we, being the people of God, meaning the people who are purchased by God, God owns us. So when he created us, initially, he gave us a free will. But because of the sin of Adam and Eve, and original sin, we fell out of grace in our nature. It is something that is propagated through the generations because of our nature. At which point, we collectively, humanity collectively, became the slave of the devil. So the only time where, in one sense, we were masters of our destiny was in the garden. After the garden, that ceased to be the case. We became slaves to the devil. Then when Jesus came and he died on the cross and instituted the sacraments in the church, he, on the cross, with his blood, paid the price. He paid the price for us. He redeemed us. The word to redeem means what exactly? You buy back. That's what redeem means. Literally, you buy back. So by paying the price, he redeemed us. Hence, he owns us. And that is where our fundamental struggle is. And we will see it in the book of Numbers very clearly. And through it we can reflect on our own lives. Our fundamental struggle is, as St. Thomas Aquinas would put it, with creatorhood. We rebel against the notion that we are a creature owned by a creator. And I'm using the word owned specifically because it does conjure a knee-jerk reaction in us. We don't want to be owned. We want to be masters of our own destiny. We want to be like unto God. So that is the essential element. And if you notice, by the way, for those of you who are familiar with or who have done themselves these consecration to Our Lady, either the consecration through St. Louis de Montfort or the consecration through St. Maximilian Kolbe. In both of these consecrations to Mary, the saints, in the case of St. Louis, he uses the word slave. You become a slave to Mary when you're consecrated to her. And he insists on the notion that the one thing you're going to leave, you're going to give everything to her, but most essentially, your prayers. Because he says... Deciding what to pray 
and to whom to pray. I mean, not to whom, but what to pray and what to pray about and who you want to pray for is a sign of a free man. But as a slave of Mary, you lose that prerogative. You give it back to her. So you only pray for her intentions. And obviously there's a lot of riches in praying for the intentions of Our Lady because now you're praying for the whole church, you're praying for your brothers and sisters, and you're making sure that your prayers are going to be used where they are most needed. And Mary knows more than you and I could ever know. St. Maximilian Kolbe ups the ante. He says he wasn't satisfied with the notion of a slave because a slave is still able to function on his own. So he replaces slave with instrument. Because he says an instrument can't even think for himself. So he likes and likens us to a brush in the hand of a painter, and that painter will paint beautiful painting with this brush. But the brush does not argue with the painter. It doesn't tell the painter where it needs to go and what it needs to draw. It only does what the painter wants it to do. And that's how we should be in the hands of Mary, he says. Two great saints, two Marian saints, and um, propagating this notion, this very biblical notion that we are owned by God. He redeemed us. Now, God didn't redeem us just to treat us as things. He has a great plan for us, but unless we accept, we truly accept that we are owned by Him. And that means, and how do we accept that? not just purely intellectually, in every frustration of our day. Because the reason why we are frustrated is precisely because we want to be masters of our own destiny. Something frustrates us because it's not going according to our plan. Most of the time the frustration comes from this. So as we work through these frustrations and recognize in them the will of the Father... Not my will be done, but your will be done. The more we can do that, the more truly we imitate Jesus Christ. Because he came to do the will of his Father. And in that, in, a, in that notion of creatorhood, in that notion of accepting God's will, all the way down to the minutest detail, lie the secret of sanctity. The way St. Jose Maria Escriva taught it, the way St. Teresa of the Little Child Jesus taught it, the way St. Charbel teaches it, all the saints teach the same lesson. It's those little details that really lead to sanctity. I'll give you one little story about a man who is uh, somewhere in um, maybe Argentina or Brazil or Mexico. He's a, he is a businessman and his case is open for, for canonization. He died, he was 80 years old. And he was a businessman. At one point he went to a building, he had to have a meeting with somebody on the seventh or eighth floor. And, well, the elevator was broken. And people were working on the elevator and said, well, we, the, uh, it's broken, you can't go up, come back in the afternoon. But the meeting was at 11. So he started taking up the stairs to the ninth floor. And his companion said, we, we cannot just do that. We, you don't, we're not going to climb all the way up to the ninth floor. And his answer was, one step for a soul. One step for a soul. Every step he took up those stairs was for the salvation of a soul. He saw in that event God's will for him to save souls. If you can just make that switch, that little switch from stopping being frustrated 
to give glory to God. And finding peace that you're doing the will of God the Father. The impact is huge. It sounds like a small thing, but it, that's, that's why St. Teresa Little Child Jesus was declared doctor of the church. This is it. It's right there. Because she was an amazing master of that. Died 25 years old, never traveled anywhere, and she's a co-patron of missionaries. God, you know, loves, you know, God has a great sense of humor. Right? So, this is it. Now, I'm mentioning all this because it's all built in here. This is the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, the power of that book, the beauty of the book, is to show us, to put in front of us, precisely people who were redeemed by God. He paid for them in, his, in, in Egypt. He passed over their homes, redeemed their firstborns. He owns them now. He redeemed them. He paid back. He got them out of Egypt when they were slaves to Pharaoh. Slavery to Pharaoh is a physical manifestation of what? Slavery to Satan. Yeah? God comes to His people. They are not the one who go to Him. He's the one who always initiate. They are groaning. They are crying for help. They can't see the end of it. They are completely overwhelmed by a force they cannot possibly defeat. Does that sound familiar? Many Catholics today, living in today's society, feel something similar to what is going on back then. We are facing a power bent on the destruction of the family in so many different ways. Society is going to a, a state of chaos from a family standpoint. We have to defend our children, defend ourselves. Pornography invades everything, is everywhere. Our government, and I mean the S, not just in the United States, but globally, seem to be bent on bringing this uh, sort of a uh, purely humanistic Philosophy in action, denying the existence of God, denying the existence of the spiritual life, denying that there is heaven and there is hell. We see the rise of science used as an instrument to propagate atheism. We see the breakdown in family life. We see so many conf confusion out there, so many religions being taught. We fear Islam. We seem to be surrounded by so many forces that we are unable to defeat. God takes the initiative. He comes to us. He comes to our aid. He hears our prayers. Book of Exodus. But then He expects something from us. That's Book of Numbers. Exodus he pulls his people out. He saves them. He leads them. He brings them to a place where they can worship him, where they can see him, where the elders dine with him. And he prepares them to enter the promised land. He expects something. He owns us. And he wants us to be holy. 
when we Catholics begin to take that seriously, and many do, many do, but when we really take it seriously across the globe, the world will be changed. Because fundamentally, what we want from him is to take care of the mess out there, but not in our hearts. You see? There is a built-in hypocrisy in our approach to the whole thing. We just want God to come in as the police, clean up the slate, get us some good president, some good bishops, some good priests, take care of the mess, so we can go on living our lives and not having to worry much about anything. You see what I'm saying? So it is sort of a combination of Arthur Schwarzenegger and Santa Claus combined into one. You know, it's muscled Santa Claus. It's Santa Claus with power, with a cavalry behind him or something. But God doesn't work this way. What God wants is holiness. Because he cares about the salvation of our souls. He cares about our lives after this one. That's what he is really intent on. And that only begins when we understand that we've entered the covenant with him and we obey the covenant and then we trust him and he will take care of us. We are very much like these Israelites. We're camping at Mount Sinai, the church. We have a long ways to go before we reach heaven, some more so than others. God is our guide. He is the one to take us over. We can get there, and He's going to assign the roles for each one of us for the good of the church, for the glory of God and the good of the church. Hear what I'm saying. For the glory of God and the good of the church, not for our interest. Do you see what I'm saying? So, in our approach, unless we have in our heart an ardent love for God and an ardent love for the church, we're not going to make it. Because love is the only thing that allows us to accept the sacrificial life that God asks of us for others. Yeah? There is nothing but love that carries us forward in doing the same thing over and over again, given to others for their good, for the glory of God and the good of the church. If we could frame our lives this way, everything we do, every action we take, then we're truly obeying Him, and we are instruments of His grace. The prayer of St. Francis, we all sing it, right? We all find it so beautiful. You know what? More often than not, I shy from singing it. Because I'm hearing these words, and I know what they mean. And it's not easy. What St. Francis is asking, if you, if you meditate on his prayer, on the prayer of St. Francis, right? let me be instrument. Go back to what I said about St. Maximilian Kolbe and St. Saint, and Saint, um, uh, Louis de Montfort. Instrument, not CEO. Right? Not general or colonel or the leader. Instrument. He means instrument. Let me be the instrument of what? Yeah, your peace. Now think about it. If you're engaged in a battle to bring peace, what are you going to do? You're going to, fight, you're going to face opposition. 
The devil, for one, is going to oppose you, and others might as well. So, he's not asking for, Lord, send me to, to, uh, to Hawaii on an extended vacation. Right now, where there is, lend me, bring love. Where there is hatred, how do you do that? How do you take hatred away and bring love instead? Say that again. Okay, love your neighbor. What does that mean? Where do you get love from? From God. You can't give what you don't have, right? You cannot give what you don't have. Well, how will you get love from God? How will, God, how will the love of God will, show, will shine through you? By imitating Jesus. Be imitators of me. By imitating Jesus. What did Jesus do? The will of his Father. Back to square one, what I was saying. You go through, go, collect 200. Yeah? These frustrations you get in your everyday life, those are God's kisses to you. Those are His ways of saying, come to me. Don't throw them away. Be mindful, spiritually mindful, of what you're doing, which has impact on the whole universe. If there's somebody who's frustrating you and you're able to smile and act congenially with love towards that person, you're changing the universe. And you're doing it for, not for personal control. You know, if you're a, a Buddhist or a Hindu or you're training in Kung Fu or whatever, you can do it because you want to gain control over yourself, which is good. This is a natural virtue. But the problem with it is that it's just stroking your pride. Because it's all you. But if you're doing it out of love for God the Father and recognizing in it God's will for you, you're changing the world. That is a prayer that is so powerful. That action is prayer that is so powerful. That is what God is setting up in numbers. This is what He expects from them. Numbers is an exercise in holiness. This is why that book is so important for us. Because we read it, we reflect on how they're doing it, and we ask ourselves, how am I doing it today? We hear what God wants, and we ask ourselves, how am I responding to what God wants? You see what I'm saying? That's why we're taking our time to go through a book that usually when you read it is difficult, it's a tar pit, you're going to stop and you know when you, you don't want to go. Because read out of context, especially out of the liturgical context of the church and the spiritual life and the relationship we have with God, it's a very abrasive book to read. Very difficult. So in chapter 9, now, God is preparing them to leave. Remember, we're still in a preparation. And He speaks to Moses in the wilderness in the first month of the second year. So the first part of this chapter 9 is a flashback. Because in chapter 1 of the book of Numbers, we were in the first day of the second month of the first year. Here, there is a flashback, moving us a month back. And you'll see why in a minute. Because God is telling them that they must keep the Passover. And then, here's what happens. Verse 6, And there were certain men who were unclean through touching the dead body of a man, so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. 
And those men said to him, We are unclean through touching the dead body of a man. Why are we kept from offering the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? Moses said to them, Wait, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, If any man of you or your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body, or is afar off on a journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord in the second month on the fourteenth day in the evening they shall keep it. Hence we understand why at this juncture, right before they are about to leave in the second month, this is brought. Because before they're going to leave, they're going to give the chance for those who could not keep the Passover in the first month to come back and keep it in the second month. That explains why we see this flashback and we come back. Now, observe again, that the journey that God has in mind for His people is always liturgically centered. Everything starts with the liturgy. The liturgy moves the world. What powers the universe is the liturgy. And I mean it. Seriously. What powers the universe is the liturgy. What keeps the order of the universe is the liturgy. The Mass. Everything has been created for Jesus, by Jesus, with Jesus. Hence the celebration of the Mass on earth, which is joined to the one and only celebration of the Mass in heaven, is what brings order into this world, is what keeps it ordered, and what gives it its meaning. Hence, God's action in our lives will always be liturgical. It is important for you and me to be mindful of the feast days, to be mindful of the seasons. That's why you're here insisting so much on fasting during the season of Lent, because this is when God has decreed for us that fasting will bring about changes in our lives. And I uh, I think I may have mentioned that to you last time, but I know now at least three people who have uh, hypo, who suffer from hypoglycemia, and if you know what hypoglycemia is, is sort of a little bit related to um, diabetes in a different way. But fundamentally, your your blood sugar level, you know, goes through swings. So imagine what happens if you don't eat, and your sugar level goes through swings. Right? It affects you significantly. Yet these people who do have hypoglycemia have followed that fasting model that I told you about not drinking and not eating from noon, from midnight to noon, and they have been able to do it without any problem. This is a season of grace. This is a season where you, again, going back to what I'm saying to you, you're the creature, you are an instrument, trust the Creator to do in you what He wills. Therefore, he w- if He says, this is the season of fasting, it is His season of fasting, not my season of fasting... He is a true God. He is not deceived, nor deceives. Therefore, if He says it, then it's true. He will give us the graces we need to go through it, provided we trust Him. And then through it all, we come face to face with our weaknesses, with those areas in our lives where we need to work on. Those areas where we don't trust Him enough. Those areas we still have a weak faith. Because if our faith was not weak, and if our faith was where it needed to be, our fasting would be perfect. 
It will be an expression of this faith. Instead, our fasting, fasting tends to highlight those areas where we need to... And, and, and that is an amazing grace that God gives us because the truth will set us free. And the more we see ourselves as God sees us, but through His loving ways, the more we're able to truly implement that command that God gave us, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Right? So it is liturgical. He then tells them about that particular feast when they have to give God the glory for what happened in Egypt. So we know it is the second year, because now it's the first month of the year where they must celebrate the Passover. They've done it the month before, some couldn't, and now in the second month they're able to do it. So let's look at those, these, these passages in a little bit more detail. So in verse 6, And there were appearing before, uh, indicates proximity but not contact. And it is used whenever ritual or etiquette requires one to keep one's distance. Uh, for example, women before communal leaders, as in uh, the book of Joshua, chapter 17, verse 4, lay Israelites before God, as in Exodus, chapter 16, verse 9, or here, contaminated persons before Moses. So they come and they keep their distance. In verse 6, we see that Moses and Aaron are mentioned, but presumably Aaron is mentioned simply because he happened to be there. He plays no role. That's key for us. Aaron is the high priest. In this case, he would represent, he would have the function of a bishop. Moses is the one who goes and speaks to God, and God speaks to Moses directly. Moses, in this case, is the figure of the Holy Father. The truth of the faith are communicated either directly to Peter or to the ordinary magisterium of the church or to a council of bishops. These are the three ways in which truth is communicated. Therefore, the teaching authority of a bishop, and he does have any teaching authority, is to bring to his people that truth. A bishop has no authority in declaring truth. His authority is to communicate pastorally the truth of the church to his people. You understand? Our obedience to a priest and to a bishop, for that matter, is always conditioned upon their teaching of the truth. We cannot obey a priest or a bishop when what they're teaching is at variance with the truth. On the other hand, if the priest wants the church painted all blue, and he's not contravening to the norms of the church, and we just so happen not to like blue, we obey. That is not a matter of doctrine. Yeah? If the celebration of the Mass is not done perfectly, we still obey. We just don't leave. So, 
it requires a certain discernment, but I'm just explaining to you where this starts. It starts here with Moses and Aaron. Aaron is the high priest, and yet he has no ability to go before the Lord and receive the teaching, receive the truth. And, um, and so Moses has to do that. He plays that prophetic role. And this is where the prophet is. A prophet isn't someone who is going to tell you who wins the lotto in three years from now. Well, he might do that for specific events. But generally speaking, a prophet is someone who is able to act as God's messenger or is able to bring about God's truth to the people in the context in which they live. That's the prophetic function of the church and it has never left the church. And obviously, the Holy Father is always a prophet. In his encyclicals, there is the function of a prophet. Hence, it's important for us to read the encyclicals of the Holy Fathers, to be familiar with them, because they contain the truth of God that is given to us. So, when they say kept from, the implication is that they would be excluded from the national festival as if they are foreigners. Which is very interesting because their concern at this point is not, what shall we do to give glory to God? Their concern isn't, we want to give glory to God too. Their concern is, we don't want to be treated like strangers. You can see clearly that Scripture is indicating that the fundamental reason why they're approaching God isn't because they love God so much that they are really sad and have missed out on the Passover. It's that they just don't want to be out, out, you know, treated like foreigners. And still, God gives them, and because they came and asked, they receive. Even when their intention isn't perfectly pure, the mere fact of coming and asking, you receive. Because of God's love. And that's why, by the way, going to confession is such a wonderful thing. Confession is the, again, the tribunal of mercy. It isn't a judgment. And even if you go there and you're not really clear on what you should confess and what you shouldn't confess and how to do it, but the, and even if you're going because you're afraid of hell or even you're going because you, you heard me say you have to go, still you will receive. And in time, your intentions will be purified. In time, God will move you forward. And then you would do like the Samaritans did who told the woman at the well, we believe first because of your word, but now we do not believe because of what she said you would believe because of your relationship with God in the confession. Hmm? All right. In verse 10, say to the people of Israel, the implication here is that that is addressed to those who are part of the people of Israel, not resident aliens. There were some who lived amongst them who were effectively resident aliens. What is the implication? The implication isn't that they were not of the 12 tribes. The implication is that they were not, um, they were not circumcised. Right? So anyone, whether of the 12 tribes or an Egyptian who is circumcised, lives then according to the law of God and must celebrate the Passover. 
And in there, already we see the universality of the church. The Israelites never saw that. Why would God allow others who are not of the 12 tribes to share in their bounty, to receive? Because God had a much bigger plan. So it isn't just the Israelites. Anyone who's circumcised and living among them must celebrate the Passover. And he also has the choice of celebrating it on the 14th day of the second month if he was not able to do it when it actually happens on the 14th day of the first month of the year. By the way, the first month is in January, right? It's more like between March and April. Right? Which is... Which, which is in line with when we celebrate Easter. So keep that in mind. When I say first month, and that's why I'm saying first month, I'm not saying January, because it isn't January. Right? January didn't used to be the first month for the longest time. All right. There is discussion amongst the rabbis what is meant by, um, what is meant, what, does, what did God mean when he said if somebody was... Um, on a, off of a distance, and when he says, or is afar off on a journey. So, and the question was for them, how far away do you need to be before that applies? And um, essentially, there is this kind of agreement that you needed to be about 16 miles away from the temple. There was another kind of contention. Was it from your house from, or from the temple? But fundamentally, it is from the temple. And these are going to be some of the laws that the, is, that the, the, um, the um, Pharisees and the Sadducees would be sticking to, plus a whole bunch more that they added to. Like for instance, during their time, a law that was not part of the laws given to Moses that they ascribed to was, how far away can you travel before you break the law on a Sabbath? And the answer was one mile, or the equivalent of a mile. So it went down to these kind, of, these kind of details. And they tended to believe that as long as you cover this checklist of all these laws, you were just. Sort of the way we would think, if I'm going to Mass daily and I'm saying my rosary and I'm saying the, the, the chapter of divine mercy and I'm saying my evening prayers and I'm doing all of these things, I'm doing all of these things, then I'm good. And we know this is absolutely not the case. If we're doing it out of a sense of duty, if we're doing it out of a sense of fear, if we're doing it because, uh, because we like discipline, we're missing the point. Right? Because liturgy must lead to morality. The fruits of the liturgy is morality. How are you growing in the moral virtues? That's where you see the fruits. And the fruits of the Holy Spirit, obviously. But you can't separate the two. So you, I know folks who go to daily Mass. In fact, they may go to two Masses a day. They say the rosaries. They do this and then the other. They do all of those things. But do criticize them. And they flare. They are unable to accept a criticism. They get so upset and ruffled up. And you know, therefore, that something is fundamentally lacking. There is a break point between the spiritual life, which is great, and morality. Therefore, something is fundamentally broken. Because they can't take a criticism. If you can't take a criticism, you really have a problem. Yes. Like, See, very good question. No. 
No, it is not. It doesn't work this way. Because otherwise we fall into superstition. You see, true, the sacraments, and that's your point, the sacraments act uh, mutatis mutandi, as they say in Latin, which means by themselves. The power of the Eucharist acts in you without you. Okay, to your point. Uh, Saying the rosary, obviously, is something that the fruits of that is not in your hands, it's in Our Lady's hands. And she acts with those without you. Yes, all of that is good. However, fundamentally, it presupposes on our part a love of God. Because God can't act on us unless we love Him in this way. And when we show so little love to our neighbor, how can we say that we love God? Let me put it this way. Again, always take simple examples. A man says he's in love with this woman. And uh, she meets him at a restaurant. They're engaged. And she brings her sister with her. And as they're talking, her sister tells him that um, she doesn't, um, she thinks he should change his car. Right? And then he reacts disparagingly toward the sister and mocks her. Do you really think this woman now thinks that he loves her if he acts this way? He didn't even show consideration towards her sister. because right? He should have taken this and responded amiably if he did love her. Yeah. The fact that he didn't, right? well, this is how we act with God. So we say to God, we love him, we love him, we love him, because we are doing our prayers, we're saying the rosary, we're doing all these things. And as soon as one of his daughters or sons says something to us, right? We basically read them the, their acts, right? And treat them like they are garbage. What is missing here, you see? Fundamentally, many of the people, some people who do that have such a self-focus, they're, they're so much focused on themselves that they've forgotten everybody else around them. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a moral issue. It's a moral dysfunction, which often also is rooted in uh, emotional dysfunction. Right? Something is lacking at the level of nature. Something is broken in them that get them to act this way. But be aware of this. The two are not separated. Right? Can't separate. And the perfect example is the parable of that servant who owed God so much that God forgave him his debt. And he goes out and he makes another fellow slave who owes him only a little and he throws him in jail. Right? It just doesn't work this way. He went, he prayed, he asked for forgiveness, he did all this, he received, and he, what did he do? Right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's the pr- fundamental principle. So be aware of that. It's not enough to say, God, I love you, I love you, I love you, and then spit on our brothers. And how do we do that? When we don't accept criticism. When we don't like what they say. When we treat them badly because they, they said, what are we showing? All right. Uh, verse 12. They're not supposed to break a bone of it. Let me read this to you. Because obviously this is taken back by Isaiah in, um, in chapter 51 of his, um, of his magnificent book as a prophecy about our Lord and by the Gospels, St. John, where it mentioned that when Jesus died, not, a broke was bro- not, not one of his bones was broken. So in, tw- tw- in verse 12, they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break a bone of it. 
according to all the statute of the Passover, they shall keep it. So when you, they ate the lamb, they were not supposed to break the bone of the lamb. Why is that? Well, what was that coming from? Well, there, there is, there's been comparative research done among the nomadic tribes in the ancient Semitic world and elsewhere, and they indicate that the underlying belief, the underlying belief was the following. The survival of the entire skeleton, the survival of the entire skeleton was essential for resurrection in the afterlife. The survival of the entire skeleton was essential for the survival in the afterlife. Notice, if that is the case, then God is taking a existing belief that is pagan and incorporating, incorporating it into the liturgy, into the, the Passover, and then fulfilling it on the cross. And keep always in mind that Scripture isn't this perfect um, description of heaven coming down to us. It is this relationship of love of God with us, where God takes us where we are, and He talks to us with a language we can understand, and then purifies it and sublimate, and then He purifies it and moves it forward to the point where all these superstitious beliefs are gone, and what we're left with is an expression of love towards God. He does all of this. right? Now, Notice that from the point of view of the Israelites, what I just said to you is completely absurd. How many of you you think, or how many of the Israelites you think, were really worried about the survival of the lamb in the afterlife? We're talking about a lamb. Yeah? So, what does it matter if you break the bone or not? I mean, after all, nowhere in Israel were there this kind of real big worry about making sure that in the afterlife, there'll be a whole bunch of lamb going around, right? So even with that explanation I gave you, it makes no sense if you think about a lamb only. Right? Okay, but now let's pull back. We saw that last week. When the Levites were brought before the Lord, what did the whole community do. They put their hands over them, and we said that was a gesture of what? What were they doing with that? Laying down their sins. Sins, right? And the Levites in turn laid their hands on the two oxen. Laying their sins, and knees were sacrificed. Hence the animals stand, right, as representatives of whom? Not yet, of the, the people, the Levites, right? They are a substitute for the Levites. In essence, God is saying, when I passed over and I killed the firstborns of the Egyptians, I spared your firstborns, so they are mine, I own them. If I own them, I have the right of taking them from you the moment they're born. Yeah? But I give you the opportunity of redeeming them from me by sacrificing someone else instead. And I'll accept the sacrifice of an oxen or lamb instead of you. Yeah? 
So then, by not breaking the bone... Now, when you understand, therefore, that this is symbolic, all right, this is not a barbecue. We barbecue lamb, we're just barbecuing lamb, right? No one looks at the lamb and says, oh my, look at this, I see myself here. No one has this existential concern barbecuing a lamb, right? But not the Passover. It isn't a barbecue. You look at this lamb and you say, that's my son. That's me, if you're the firstborn. I'm, I'm him. I'm it. I'm that lamb. And in, in, when you see what you do to the lamb, and you know this is in substitute of you, you're going to reflect and say, oh, what does God expect me to do then? I'm supposed to be like that lamb. You understand? But when not a bone of the lamb is broken, what is the implication therefore? No, 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 no. When you don't break a bone of the lamb, as the commandment prescribes, what is the implication then? For whom? For the firstborn. Yeah. And by extension, for the whole community. So, you begin to understand that it takes a sacrifice to get to the afterlife. It's a pedagogy through which God is teaching them about what is necessary to reach the afterlife. Do you understand? But here you are facing the Passover and you have a choice. You either can focus on the spiritual side and see yourself in this lamb and understand what God has in mind and begin to reflect on this. Or, you just go through the motions. Right? Be a good car wash Catholic. And then have a nice barbecue. Do you see? So many of us can be, do be doing the same thing. Here comes Lent. Oh well, it's Lent. Let me see. I'll stop reading email. Uh, that's a check. So, it's a guilt-driven thing. I'm supposed to do something. I don't really know why. But I'm just going to do it. I'll pick something to, you know, that I can talk about. Okay. And I, I'm not going to eat meat. No, why? I have no clue. But I'm just going to eat meat because I said, well, no, I'm not supposed to eat meat, so I'm going to do it. It's almost superstitious. I'll go through the whole thing. And then Easter comes, go to Easter, celebrate Easter, and then go home, watch sports, and then do what I really want to do. Okay? Well, back then it was the same deal. The whole thing I said is liturgical. You understand the lamb stands as a substitute for them. God expects them to be a sacrifice. He owns them. He's already telling them, I will tell you what you do. Especially the Levites. They have no choice. He picked them and he tells them, this is what you're going to do and this is what you're not going to do. Especially the Levites. Because they're supposed to lead the others. Always the firstborn. Go back to, go back to Genesis, right? And... And in that lamb, they see themselves and they see that through the sacrifice, they will reach the afterlife. That's how you reach the afterlife. This is what God is saying. Where else do we see this? We see it in Ezekiel. Remember? Walking in the valley of the dead. And what does he see first? All the dead bones, skeletons. And God put back sinews and flesh and muscles and bring them back to life. Yeah? So that's why this business... And then St. John on the cross says, and not 
so that to fulfill what was said, not a bone of his will be broken. That's exactly what happened. Not a bone was broken for that reason. Yes. Oh, so what I said was that the reason why this is happening is because um, the lamb is a substitute for those who offer it. And in ancient times, they believed that the skeleton, the preservation of the skeleton, is necessary for the afterlife. Therefore, by not breaking the bone, you are ensuring the afterlife, but not to the lamb, but to the one whom the lamb represents. Yeah? Well, really, it isn't about us. This is about God doing this to us. The idea is that your life will be preserved. That no matter what trial you go through, and even if you have to offer sacrifice, your life is preserved. All right? That's the principle behind it. Okay? Yes. When they burn the body. You mean today? Oh, um, again, you remember, we need to understand what is behind it. I don't mean today that if... So let's take somebody who dies in a car accident and his bones are... Or fall from a building. And every bone of his life is broken. Does this mean he, he... No. What is important to understand and what was God is trying to signify through this. That is... Your life is a sacrifice, but unto eternity. For now, today, it's, it's, uh, we're so used to it, we, we don't even think about it anymore. But I'm just showing you the genesis of the message, how God instructs them and instructs us through it. It doesn't mean physically today that you can't, you can't have somebody dying with a broken bone. Right? That's not the case. Right? So... Um, as far as cremation is concerned, it isn't the preferred mode for um, dealing with the dead, but the church does allow it, provided that the remains are treated with dignity and are buried. And are buried. You can't have, uh, you know, uh, Aunt Liz be cremated and you take her remains with you to the party the following week. Because she enjoys the party. She's not going to work. She needs to be interred. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, you can. But usually, I mean, if you've had a mass, a, a, a funeral, that has already happened before the, uh, the cremation. And then, instead of going to the cemetery, you go to the cremation, and then you take the urn, and you bury it. Just as you would any normal... So, at this point you're essentially dealing with an economic condition where maybe burial is becoming too expensive, but you're still following the exact same process. You can't take Aunt Liz and go fly over the ocean and spread her uh, ashes. No, you can't do that. Right? So that's the, the idea behind cremation. All right. Pardon? You are... Uh, essentially, it's a, it's a, it's a form of... Um, um, uh, desecration. You're desecrating her body. Remember, the body is created by God. And so you're basically, number one, <coughs> you're desecrating her body. Number two, you are showing really, at minimally, disrespect towards God by, by doing that. Yeah. Um, it depends. It depends. Uh, a sacrilege requires intent. Some do it by ignorance, but they're not. Um, intent on committing a sacrilege and it assumes that the person who died died in a state of grace I mean there's a lot that goes into this so 
Not necessarily. I wouldn't necessarily say in all cases it is sacrilegious. Obviously, it's a saint, yes, it is sacrilegious. Because that is completely consecrated to God. But in most, in other cases, who knows? Right? All right. Very good. Now, now that, is, that, now that Passover has been taken care of, they're ready to leave. They're ready to leave. And here's what we want to say about this. It's going to be short. First, the whole priestly legislation that began in Leviticus. So a lot, we haven't seen, there's a lot that happens in Leviticus, which we haven't seen now, comes to an end here. I'm just connecting, I'm tying those two together. When we do Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we'll come back to that. All right. So they, while they are at Mount Sinai, God is instructing the Levites. So this whole piece is hidden from us in numbers. We're not seeing this. We'll deal with that later. But it comes to an end now, and they are essentially ready to move. God is going to lead them in the wilderness march, not by his voice commands, but by his appointed sign, a cloud encased fire. During the day, only the cloud is visible, the fire presumably dimmed by the sunlight, but night renders the cloud invisible and a luminous fire can be clearly seen. Interestingly, that fire is called kavod. I'm certainly not saying it, I'm not pronouncing it right in, in Hebrew, but K-A-V-O-D would be the spelling in English. And you find it in Exodus 24.17, in Chronicles 7.3, in Ezekiel 1.27-28. And... It is compared to the Akkadian Melamu and Puluthu, which respectively describe the aureole of the garment or the glory of gods or kings or demons. The notion that is an emanation of glory that is shining and, and, uh, and uh, expresses the power of the deity. So again, God uses imagery that would be familiar to them and they would immediately connect with it um, to express his presence. When in motion, the power of his presence is increased. The fire leads them and the cloud hovers above them to shield them and protect them. It must have been a pretty awesome sight to see this the first three days. And after that, get used to it. Right? How do we know that? It's very simple. Look at the tabernacle behind me. Right? You receive your first communion, it's a big thing, and after that, eh. Yeah? Because sometimes we may be tempted to think, well, if God was among them and he did all these things, how could they tell? Well, look at the tabernacle. It's the same thing. That's why it's so Catholic. That's why it's so Catholic. God taught them, he's teaching us even better now, with greater clarity. God was with them, he's with us. He actually comes into our soul. He gives us a life of grace. God leads them. He's leading us. God is their midst. He's in our midst. The same thing. And how do we behave? Like they behaved. Okay? All right. So, God is the one who gives the command. He's the one to say when they're going to leave and when they're going to stay. He's the one to tell them how far they're going to walk. Keep that in mind. Because guess what's going to happen? And the first walk, we're going to see it. So if you now understand the pattern, you see what is going on. God is giving them all these 
um, direction he's explaining them what he's going to do. God manifests his presence. They're about to walk. What do we expect to happen? God manifests his presence. They're going to crash. That's the psychology of scripture. Which is very interesting. God, you think God manifests his presence. They're going to start singing like a bunch of saints. And levitating, going to heaven or something. No, they crash. More often than not, when God manifests his presence in our lives, we rebel. Because it isn't what we wanted. It isn't what we expected. It isn't what we had in mind. More often than not. Back to what I was saying earlier. Because those little frustrations, we respond to them with pride. We respond to them with anger. We respond to them with frustration. And we're basically saying to God, I will not serve. So, what I'll say about chapter 10 First, God tells Moses to make trumpets of silver, and these trumpets will be used to signal when they're going to move and when they're going to stop, as well as to signal the beginning of feasts. All I'm going to say about this right now is that these trumpets, God tells them, will be for them the remembrance, meaning that when they will blow these trumpets, God, they will be remembered before God. God will remember them. That is, do this in memory of me. Anamnesis. Same words. The intent, therefore, is that the blowing of the trumpets are the visible sign of the covenant of God with His people. The trumpets are basically saying that the covenant is in action and God will act according to it. Why am I mentioning this to you? Because that is a very important principle of interpretation for the book of Revelation. Because after the seven seals in the book of Revelation, you have the seven trumpets. And if you do not understand what I just said to you, you're going to wonder about the trumpets. Why are angels blowing trumpets? Well, because of this, there were actually two kinds of trumpets. There's these silver trumpets that I just talked to you about right now, and there is another kind of trumpets um, called the, um, the shofar, S-H-O-F-A-R. The shofar was made out of a horn of a bull. Okay, out of a horn of a bull. And the difference between the two is that the silver trumpets, the of which God is speaking of right now, can be blown only by priests. Only priests can blow this trumpet. Whereas the shofar, the one which is made out of a, uh, uh, the horn of a bull, can be blown by anybody. Right? And both played similar roles. You could blow the shofar for alarm, for jubila- jubilation, for war. You can also blow the silver trumpets for the same reason. The difference though, made out of silver, it is part of the consecrated objects that are part of the liturgy. And that's really unique to Israel, the blowing of the trumpet as part of a liturgy to indicate God's coming. And there is actually a very interesting study that is done to asking this question, because the book of Revelation obviously is written in the Greek, not in Hebrew. And the question is, did the angels use the shofar or the silver trumpets? Because St. John doesn't tell us. But the principle behind the activity, if you understand the, the, the activity of the angels, the angelic activity, it is priestly in nature. It derives from the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are acting as part of this priesthood. and must have been that they were blowing a silver trumpet because also it's liturgical. So that has important, it's an important consideration for a proper understanding of the book of Revelation. 
fundamentally, this is then is used to indicate to Israel when they have to leave, when they have to stop. And then the march begins. And the bulk of the section is concerned with the opening months, as I told you, and the closing months. And that's it. And the rest of it is really uh, dealing with some laws and with a rebellion we're going to talk about later. Here, in verse 18 through 28 in chapter 10, there is the order of the march. I don't have to go through it. All I can tell you is that it is essentially the exact order of all the tribes as we've seen before. The tribes are organized. We know that Judah is the one who begins and the, you know how they're supposed to come out and how they're supposed to come back in. This is essentially what that part of the chapter is dealing with. And then, between... Verses 29 through 32 is the guidance in the wilderness. And we see right away that God is the one who guides them. God tells them where to go. So it is with us. The Eucharist guides us and the Eucharist tells us where to go. That is why it is so important for the sanctification of our daily lives to have devotion to the Holy Eucharist. Because it guides our lives and leads us where God wants us to go. Okay? That is really important. And at the same time, Moses speaks with some non-Israelites who are part of the camp, who are related to his father-in-law Jethro, and he asks them to stay with them and walk with them because, as he says, you can be our eyes. Well, if you think about it, if God is leading them, why is Moses asking some non-Israelites to be his eyes? There are many places in Scripture where we see the combined action of God and men. There's no contradiction here. It's not a paradox. God says, I will lead you, but it doesn't mean that it is through a supernatural activity that He leads us. It's going to be through people. And back to square one, if you are not in tune with the frustrations that God is sending your way, you're not going to understand how He leads you. If you're working on a project... And you're hitting frustration after frustration, one after the other, nonstop. And you have a heavy heart as you go through it. It would make sense at one point to stop, go before the Blessed Sacrament and say, is that how you want me to go? Am I missing something? Because we are imperfect. We don't hear it well. And it is often the case that you might find out that this is not where God wants you to go right now. He has some other place He wants you to go. So if you include God in your daily lives and ask Him these questions, if you're before the Blessed Sacrament or if you can't, just right now where you're doing it, is that what you want me to do? Sometimes He will lead you down a wrong path. God will lead you down the wrong path. Isn't that strange? But why is He leading you down the, the, the wrong path? Because through your obedience, you're giving Him glory. He's more interested in your obedience than in your success of your project at that point. Then he will turn you around and lead you to where you need to go and you will discover you weren't that far away. Exhibit A, what I just said, St. Joseph. God allowed St. Joseph to go down the wrong path about Our Lady. He thought that he should let her go. And by the way, it didn't take him a couple of days. More likely, it was a couple of months Months he was thinking about what, what he should do. And God let him do that. <clears throat> and once he made a wrong decision, God told him, no, that's not what I want you to do. 
So don't expect your past path to be the way they describe it to you, sort of a zigzagging thing going up and up and up in success. God doesn't work this way. He's interested in your sanctification. So yeah, he might lead you the wrong way on purpose because he has something much bigger in mind. Exhibit B, St. Francis. Francis rebuilt my church. What did St. Francis do for a couple of years? Go build a local church. He turned himself into a contractor. What did God do? Did he tell him to stop? No. Was that what he had in mind? Did he have in mind for St. Francis to just build this one church over here? Did he tell him to stop? No. Over time, St. Francis discovered what God... Through this whole thing, St. Francis, we're going where he needs to go. Yeah? Okay. So keep that in mind. But it is God that leads us, both in putting people in our, in our path and also by his spiritual presence in our lives. All right. The first stage of the march, I'm going to stop with this, is a three-day journey to Tabera in the wilderness of Paran. Paran is basically, essentially, the whole wilderness of Sinai. But in specific case, it is mostly, if you look at it from Egypt, the, um, or if you look at it down from Israel, it's about, take, take Sinai split it into two, and it's the southern part that would be pretty much called Paran. The idea now is that they're going to make a three days journey to Tabera, which essentially is the same distance from three days journey from Egypt. Right? They're really close to Egypt and they could go back, but now they're moving three days journey hence. They did this journey from Egypt to Sinai in three days without stopping. By without stopping, I don't mean they didn't stop during the night. They did. But it isn't that they journeyed for one day, stopped for two, and then journeyed. No, it was three days of march. Right? Now they're going to do the same. The key thing I want to, I want to point out to you is that now, when, when they made the first three journeys, the first three days journey, they grumbled, but God did nothing about the grumbling. Now there's going to be a difference. They're going to grumble again, and you will see what God does. We'll see that as we start in chapter 11. Right? Henceforth, the word mountain of the Lord, which designates Mount Sinai, um, will always be a reference to that event where Moses met God on the mountain. But as they transition over, and when they reach the temple, it will be called, the temple becomes the, the, the mountain of the Lord. Right? Jerusalem becomes the mountain of the Lord. But really, Mount Sinai is always the mountain of the Lord, right? But again, the tabernacle is the mountain. Just as the lamb represents, is a symbol of the one who offers a sacrifice, the tabernacle is a symbol of the presence of God on the mountain. And towards the end of this chapter, we see two verses from Moses where he is essentially praising the Lord in military terms because he says to the Lord, Arise, O Lord, let thy enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, meaning when the tabernacle rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel, to the myriad of myriads of Israel. So he sees his journey as in military term. And so must we. This is a battle. This is a battle. And on that, I will finish by saying this. Those of you who would like to uh, get a good book to help you with your uh, battle 
in the moral area, I do recommend you get a book by Tan called Spiritual Combat. Okay, Spiritual Combat. It's a very good book to help you on your own journey, your own spiritual journey, your own battle. Um, the author is really a group of uh, monks, even though there is a name attached to the book. It's essentially a compilation, almost like a frequently asked questions that has been organized when a bunch of people who came to this monastery asking advice from monks over specific aspect of their lives, and the monks' response have been sort of collect, gathered into this book called Spiritual Combat. And I do recommend, if you have friends, to get together once a month and read it together and discuss it. It will prove very fruitful. So, at the end of this, what I will want to say is that God prepares us, God sanctifies us, God nourishes us, God protects us, God leads us, and we betray Him. That's the reality. That is our reality. This is our utter dependence on God. Right? This is our, the prayer of St. Philip Neri. Right? I told you this many, many times. Lord, remember Philip today, lest he betrays you again. Right? You remember me, meaning you take care of me, you help me, you sustain me, because if you don't, I'm going to betray you. Getting to this conviction getting to fully understanding that these are the choices we have in front of us. Either we live according to God's will and we ask for His help constantly or we're going to betray Him. There is nothing in between. There is no, I am going to be good on my own. God, you don't have anything to do. Thank you very much. Not going to work. Yeah? So, hopefully you will continue this week with this wonderful season of Lent and have a very um, uh, wonderful and um, prayer-filled Holy Week, and I'll see you the week after. So, God bless you. I will say prayers, and after that, we'll take some questions. Questions? Yes. Yeah, the question is, um, when do you know whether what you're doing, if if you're performing a risky um, activity, an activity that that has a higher risk for your life, when do you know that it is a morally listed activity to perform? And the question, as with everything else, is driven by charity. The charity that is connected to the activity must be able to justify the risk. When it doesn't, the activity is vain. And it can be also a way of testing God. And it is certainly not something that we should be engaging in. But when it is, then it has a purpose, and it's a good purpose. Therefore, it is justified. So... In a case of extreme sports, <clears throat> the fundamental principle of extreme sports is that they are, by their very nature, vain. On the one hand, obviously, they extol something of human capabilities and capacity and courage, and we all enjoy that. We see something where a human being is able to transcend what we think is possible. So in that sense, they have something very useful in them, because they're telling us that we can do things We can do better. We can do more than we think we can do. That's a good thing. Problem is it's not enough to justify people putting their lives um, in that risk over and over and over again. It's one thing to do it once to show people that they can actually do something greater. So there may be a good good cause there. But when you do it over and over again, 
um, you really need to ask yourself this question whether it is the right thing to do. The other thing, obviously, is, is how controlled is the risk? So uh, I may perceive something as very risky when someone who knows what he's doing may understand that it isn't. And that's all well and good. So again, <coughs> there may be cases where I may perceive something as risky, but really it isn't. Um, and hence, you have to apply proper judgment. But skydiving, bungee jumping, all the extreme sports, you know, using bikes and jumping through, um, prudential judgment needs to be applied to, to really ask yourself this question, am I doing something for the greater glory of God, or am I doing something out of pure vanity? Um, absolutely. It, um, most people, unfortunately, who go through these extreme sports don't tend to go to confession before. So that's another issue where they are not in a state of... Yes. No. That's a good question. Okay. That's a very good... Very good. Let's say you're deathly scaring of heights, right? Um, <clears throat> being able to overcome that fear is a good thing. There is a substantial reason why you want to do that. Now... Is bungee jumping the less riskier activity you can do to achieve that goal? Or let's say if you're able to go up a skyscraper and go to the 50th floor and stand by a window and look down or up, would that also achieve the same goal? Yeah? Plus, uh, you want to be sure that that will cure the, the, the phobia. Basically, it's a phobia. And sometimes it could be just due to uh, imbalance in, your, in the chemical makeup. It had nothing to do with what you... It's just something is, is not right. At other times, it could be something that you lived when you were little or whatever. So you want to apply the right medication. Hence, consultation with science and psychology and see what they say is also an important element. I wouldn't just decide to just you know, go bungee jumping because I'm afraid of height. That may not yield the result you expect. It may not be the right dose. <clears throat> it may not be the right dose, exactly. Yes. Okay. Very good question. Let's clarify this. Frustration is an expression of impatience. Always. It's a vice. It's never a virtue. Let me show you. Do you do something wrong? Do you? Do you do something wrong and you do it often? Do you want God to be frustrated with you? How about Our Lady? Would you like her to be frustrated with you? If God is not frustrated with you, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about all of us, okay? I'm just looking at you because you asked me the question. That's the only reason, all right? Okay. Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be clear here. I'm not trying to single you, all right? If, if God is not frustrated with me, who gives me the right to be frustrated with anybody? Now, there was one case where Jesus was angry. Anger is a different thing. There's something called holy anger. But you know what? Most often than not, we use it as an excuse. Right? Because more, more often than not, we're not that holy to have holy anger. Right? Let's, let's go back and look at it in a little bit more detail. <clears throat> uh, let, let, me, let me give you a very good example that frustrates all of us. Somebody, a kid, is sitting in front of you and imitates you. So you say, stop it. He says, stop it. I told you to stop it. I told you to stop it. Stop it, I say. Stop it, I say. Okay. We get rapidly frustrated, don't we? 
It's actually a very powerful attack on our identity. Very, very powerful. And we feel it right away. So we get frustrated. Now, where is the frustration coming from? Coming from various... It's a complex emotion, but it is rooted in our insecurity. It is rooted in our um, uh, inability to actually transform the world according to our image. So it's rooted in our notion that I can't do what I really want to do. We're not frustrated because this person is not doing something good. We're actually frustrated because he's simply not doing what we're telling him to do. That's the real source of the frustration. It has nothing to do with the fact that it's good or bad. It just has to do with the fact that he's not doing what we want him to do. Frustration is an expression of a lack of control. That's what it comes from. I'm not in control of my situation. I'm frustrated. I'll give you a reason. I'll give you another example. Suppose you are dealing with your keyboard. The keyboard is an object. And it's a dumb object at that. Yes? You're typing a letter and the space bar gets stuck. So you unstuck it and you keep on typing and you hit it and it gets stuck and it puts a whole bunch of whites on your page. So you unstuck it again, you erase the things and you turn around, you're talking to somebody, you hit it, it gets stuck, it puts a whole bunch of... You get frustrated. You're frustrated with a keyboard. You are frustrated with... a Why? Because you then talk to the thing and not very politely. Or, as some might be tempted to do, you fling the thing at the side of the room. You're frustrated with a thing. The thing is not doing anything bad or good. That thing has no moral intent for us to say bad or good. It's just doing what it's supposed to do and it's broken. But we're frustrated. Your car. You put the key in the car and try to open the car. It doesn't open. Or it doesn't start. What do you do? You talk to the car. And you express your frustration. You see? No. Frustration is simply my inability to control the world. Frustration is an indication that I want to be a tyrant. I want the world to do what I want the world to do. And because it doesn't do it, I'm frustrated. That's all. Fundamentally, frustration for us is a small dose of atheism. Or it's atheism in small doses. Because we don't believe that when this is happening, that's exactly what God wants for us. Never mind the other. So back to your question. Yes, Exhibit A, Pilot. Pontius Pilot. Pontius Pilot was a weakling. He was politically minded. All he cared about was his career. He knew Jesus was innocent. He got afraid by this, that the Sanhedrin will accuse him to Rome, that he's letting a guy who calls himself the king go freely. But he doesn't want to kill him because he doesn't think he should. So what does he do? He gets him scourged. How does Jesus react? Does Jesus get frustrated? He tells him, you would not have power over me Unless it was given you from above. And he meant it in both ways. Well, really, unless it was given you by my Father. God the Father gave Pilate power over his own son. 
Yeah? See, all these are excuses for us mini tyrants in our ways to want to control the world. Yeah? <clears throat> and I'll say one more thing. Especially for you women. You spend so much of your energy trying to change others. Do you know how many wives I know who spend most of their lives trying to change their husbands? It's, in, it's built into you because you nurture and you want to educate and bring up, etc. So you take it one step further and you decide you're going to change this person. Right? And guys sometimes fall in the same thing. I remember uh, Dr. Um, what's her name now? She stopped doing these programs. Laura. Yeah, Dr. Laura. She wrote a book about the 10 top idiotic things that men can do. And one of which was, a man can save a damsel in distress from a dragon. But a man cannot save a damsel in distress from herself. Meaning, don't ever marry a woman and thinking, oh, she'll change. Doesn't work this way. So, all this, the frustration is really a complex thing, but fundamentally it expresses our desire of control, our desire to get things to go our way, our desire to know what is right and what is wrong, and to make it happen. We want to be in control, not God. That's frustration. St. Louis de Montfort was an awesome sculptor. He was an artist. So he sculpted the ways of the cross, and he had people who came from all over the area, poor people, who helped him make an amazing way of the cross. It took them a year of work to build it. And in the process of building it, the faith of the people was being rejuvenated and being helped. It was an incredible thing. But because, see, he was a missionary in his own diocese, and he told his bishop, send me wherever you need me to to go. And so (coughs) he was sent to parishes, that had problems. So, <coughs> whenever St. Louis would show up in a town, people would get scandalized. We're not that bad that I have to send Father de Montfort to us. Why is he coming here? So he got to one village where the local um, baron had his own um, flag on top of the altar. <coughs> Father de Montfort took it out. And that baron, or duke, or something, some nobility, some noble guy was really upset. So he waited for Father de Montfort to complete this whole way to the cross and talked to the bishop and convinced the bishop not to bless it. And the bishop, being politically minded, didn't. It scandalized all these people who helped Father de Montfort. And Father de Montfort knew that because of this, many would lose their faith. Not a word. He went on. Not a word. I told you the stories of St. Charbel last week, didn't I? Were you here when I said those? No? Father Charbel uh, was helping others collect some wood. And there was one brother who was uh, irascible. He had a really um, uh, choleric temperament. And he would be getting upset. He would get upset with Father Charbel all the time for something that Father Charbel would do. And then he, at one point he told him, I am, Father Shabbat, I'm going to use you as wood for the fire. And Father Shabbat fell on his knees and said, May God give me the uh, power, the strength to obey you, brother. 
at another point, he again, he was upset with him. He said to Father Shepherd, go on the other hill and get me some wood. And then men going through a canyon, there are no roads on the other hill. So at 9 o'clock in the evening, the Father Superior is looking for Father Shepherd. didn't find him anywhere. And at 10 o'clock, he's coming back in the dark with wood. He went to the other hill to bring back. At one point, he goes to visit the, wor- the workers in the field. And he says, where's Father Shabbos? He says, oh, he's somewhere up there. And he goes to talk to Father Shabbos. He says, did you eat? No. Why? Nobody called me. What about yesterday? No. Why? Nobody called me. And the day before? No. Nobody called me. Nobody called him to eat. He didn't eat. Meekness is the virtue opposite to frustration. Blessed are the meek in spirit. They will Inherit the earth. Work on the frustration. Recognize that God is more interested in you being faithful than you being successful in anything. And then, best part of it all, take the suffering that you get from taming your frustration and offer it up as a sacrifice for that person. And, and stand back and see what God will do. Yeah? More is accomplished by sacrifice than by anything else. Yes. You, you always, okay, offering up does not mean that, let's go back to your example where you have maybe a boss who's being um, vindictive. It doesn't mean that if you have a chance to express your thoughts about what he's doing, you don't do it. You do it. So you react. Right? You react. All I'm saying is that you don't allow the frustration to come forth. That you can always offer. You should always be able to react, but peacefully. Back to your example, they're not doing the right thing. You let it be. You pray to God to give you the (coughs) opportunity to speak or to send somebody else to show them. And if the opportunity is given you, you speak, but in peace. Likewise. You must defend yourself if something happens. You do it, but peacefully, peaceably. Not being frustrated does not mean not doing anything. Okay, there's a big difference between the two. Yeah? You, you may have re- emotional reaction, like you'd be upset, you're, uh, whatever, that's fine. But what I'm talking about is to take it into, okay, God is sending me this. This is something God is sending me. What do you want me to do with it? To enter into conversation with God. Th- that's the key. Yeah. No, not at all. God is not, okay, God is not waiting for us, right, by the second. Oh, she cried, that's it. No. <laughs> Martha, Mary, perfect examples, right? No. You cry. It, some, there, okay, look. Somebody comes and <clears throat> uh, put a gun to your head and said, do you believe in Jesus? And you say, yes. He pulls the trigger. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Good. And he leaves. You might actually throw up. There is a physical reaction to this. It's just you cannot control. It's natural. It's part of being, having a body. So somebody comes and hollers at you or scream at you, yell at you, you're going to be flustered, you're going to be upset, you might cry because it's all too much to take. That's fine. But what do you do with it? Once you're able to think, what do you do with it? Do you turn around and you say, he's this and that and the other, and you start screaming at him and cursing him? And, or do you turn around and say, thank you, Jesus, for giving me an opportunity to share a little bit with your suffering? And I offer all of this for the salvation of this soul. Mary, my mother, I pray for him. I forgive him. That's the difference between the two. Yes, but it's good. 
in fact, Jesus gives that example of the two sons. A father has two sons. He tells the first one, go work in the field. He says, yes, father, and he doesn't. He tells the other, go work in the field. He says, no, I'm not going to. And he does it. Yeah. Which one did the will of his? The second. But it's imperfect. Yeah? Okay. So, but you know what? The problem with these examples that we're going through, they're extremes. Most of our frustration have nothing to do with anybody. Most of our frustration have to do with us. We're frustrated because uh, I'm at the bank, I'm trying to get money, the machine doesn't work. I get frustrated. Uh, I'm trying to get somewhere and there's a, a, um, uh, a jam on the road, right? A car, a car jam. And I'm late. Okay? I want to call somebody and it's ringing and it's busy. I got frustrated. We, have all, we don't have to go to these big dramatic things. I'm talking to you about the small things that happen to you in your day. And there's countless occasions of these small frustrations that are jewels given us, that God gives us, where we can just turn around and say, thank you, Father, and then give it back to you. It looks like you want me to sit in the jam. Okay. Now suddenly I'm more aware of people around me. I see this man next to me who looks really frustrated and tired. I see this lady over here who is tense. So I take my rosary and I pray for them. Suddenly, that jam is now the occasion to save souls. Do you see the difference? When I'm frustrated, it's all about me. When I enter into dialogue with my, with, with my father, it becomes, oh, wait a minute, there are others around me. I'm not the only one here. And why am I here right now? Why is God telling me stop? Because there's something important going on around me right now. Let me see. What's going on? Oh, there's these three people around me. Oh, there's this guy over there. He's begging for work. Okay. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with you. I'm praying for these people. Doing God's will. Yeah? Frustration blinds you to all of this. It takes you away from it. It focuses you on you. And that's why we have to fight it. We have to fight the good fight. We have to recognize it for what it is and not, and and refuse it. It's a big, big uh, battle ahead of us. And some more so than others. Yeah? All right. Yes. Very good questions. The first one, we take a, a, a clue from St. Um, um, yes, Saint, Saint John Vianney. In his case, he would get beaten up by the devil during the night. So many times they found him rolled up in the, in the uh, curtains and they're set on fire. His room is in a shamble. Physical battles he had. Eventually he connected this with, oh, the following day, because you know he would sit in the confessional about nine, ten hours a day, a guy who'd never gone to confession for 20 years comes and has a general confession, a change of heart, he's back into the church. So eventually he made the connection. Every time I get beaten up, there's a guy who comes back to the church. So the following day, when everybody else would be flustered by what had happened, he'd be there and he would be um, rubbing his hands saying, oh, we're going to have a good fish today. I'm going to catch a big fish. So think about that for a second. What if... Every time this boss comes and bugs you this way, because you're offering up your suffering, there's somebody being saved out there. 
you're catching a fish. Every time. And when you go to heaven, there's going to be the list of people standing there saying thank you. What are you gonna, you're going to look around and say, thank you God for having my, a boss like him. What a great grace that was for me. You see? Think of it this way. Every time he comes and bugs you, there's a soul in heaven. God is not going to waste something like that. It's precious for him. This is what I'm saying. Take it beyond the, the two of you. Another good example. I told you the story about this woman who had an amazing conversion of heart. She was, she's somewhere in Latin America. I don't remember the country. But she was walking with her nephew holding umbrellas. And they got zapped. I'm sorry? Gloria Polo. She got zapped by a lightning. Her nephew died on the spot. She was electrocuted. I mean, she was, I'm sorry to say, barbecue. Yeah, I, I mean, she went to the hospital, and if she was in coma, she's going to die. And she had, during that moment, she was in the presence of God, who showed her her life. She was not, there was not a pretty picture. I mean, she did not have a Christian life. You know why? You know why she didn't go to hell? Because while she was in a coma the following day, it wasn't in the news, it was a big deal. So the following day, there was this poor peasant who lived far, far away, went to the village to buy, I think, some fish. fish. And the local guy selling him a fish rolled them in a newspaper. And on the way back, he saw on the front of that newspaper the story about her. And he fell on his knees right there and then, interceding for her before God and promising he will do a pilgrimage on foot if God saves her. That's why she was saved. I mean, she had had so many different things that she'd done in her life. And then when she went through this lightning thing, I mean, a lot of her organs were fried, as I said. And I told her, when she was able to come in, you can never have a child. You're never able to breastfeed him. And she, she got pregnant. She had a child. And she was able to breastfeed her child. Yeah. Because a guy up there, somewhere, fell on his knees. And for two minutes... Interceded for her. That's why. So, that's why God doesn't take an abrasive boss. We are here for each other. Yeah? You can read her story on the internet. I mean, she's an amazing story. So, uh, that's an example of why these frustrations are so important. You know? And God, oftentimes, for us who are blessed to work in the IT field, doesn't need to send anybody he manages to frustrate us so beautifully with something called a computer, which is a tool that does exactly what you tell it to do, not what you want it to do. <laughs> and there are moments of frustration that we should not lose when they happen. All right? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.